0: Amen. Use me as you want to, God. Have your throne within my heart. I think that's a good prayer to cry out to the Lord this morning. Church, it is good now to open God's word together. I am so grateful for the opportunity. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here. I am not Pastor Michael. I'm a little shorter than he is, just a little. Uh, I am so grateful, though, for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you over the next five weeks, and glad for Pastor Michael and his family as they have five weeks of sabbatical, time to rest, to be together, to allow the Lord to refuel and recharge them for faithful ministry here at North River. I am so, so thankful. I just want to take a moment to express this for Pastor Michael and his faithfulness to God's word. Every time that we gather together on Sunday mornings, it is let's open our Bibles and hear what God has to say, because that's the reality for all of us. Uh, Nobody came this morning saying, I wonder what Cody's 10 good ideas are to live life. Uh, No one comes each Sunday and says, hey, what are Pastor Michael's three keys to success? Really what people are hungry for is thus saith the Lord. And so whether it's me or Pastor Michael or whoever else stands in this spot, it will be God's word open and our hearts and our ears tuned to the voice of God. Because we know that what scripture says, God says and that this book is full of life and it is beaming with glory, the very glory of God. So, uh, with our Bibles open, you're welcome to turn to Psalm chapter one. We're jumping into a new series in the Psalms. Psalm chapter one, the book of Psalms, is right in the middle of your Bibles. You can use your table of contents to get there if you need to, though there are 150 of them, so you'll probably land somewhere in the Psalms if you open up to the middle. Uh, As we begin, I wanted to begin with a little-known fact about me. When I was younger, I took pottery classes. Uh, I would go after school to uh, this little building and down into the basement, and as I walked down there, it was a a cement floor with four pottery wheels on it with bags of clay and the kiln room in the back, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I loved putting on my smock grabbing an almost dripping ball of clay and sitting down at the wheel. Now, I know you came this morning wondering how to do pottery, so let me tell you a little bit about it, okay? A few things are very, very important when it comes to pottery. The amount of clay, the amount of water used, the speed of the wheel, the amount of pressure that you apply, and then the heat of the kiln. So if you can imagine with me sitting down at the pottery wheel, grabbing your lump of clay and putting it right onto the center of the wheel and as it begins to spin, you're trying to shape this once formless lump of clay into something that's beautiful and useful. Uh, If you want to thin a section out, you have to squeeze harder. Every placement of your hand matters. At times, you may even use a small cutting device to remove finer sections or to add detail. Now, if you don't have enough moisture, the clay won't shape. If you have too much moisture, the project begins to droop. And if you don't have the clay centered on the wheel, it will start wobbling. And if you really start going too fast, the clay could even shoot off the wheel. If you press too hard, you might push your hands or your fingers through the clay. But if you don't apply enough pressure, nothing changes then when it's time to put the project into the kiln, you have to put it in at the right heat for just the right amount of time. If you're gonna do pottery, if you're gonna take a lump of clay and turn it into something beautiful, it takes vision, it takes time, it takes pressure, heat, and precision to arrive at the end of the process with something durable, with something useful. Shaped. That's what this series is about. As we come to the Psalms, as we hear God's voice in these pages, we believe that sometimes God is centering us on His wheel. Sometimes the Lord applies pressure to our lives and more pressure to thin out various sections of our lives. Sometimes he needs to add moisture and refresh us in the truth, making us soft and malleable. Sometimes he needs to do the fine detail work with his word to intricately carve something beautiful into our lives. Sometimes he speeds things up and sometimes he slows them down. And we can be absolutely certain that he will subject us to heat, for that is what makes us durable and lasting. So as we open up God's word, as we hear his voice in the Psalms, let us cry out together, oh God, shape me, change me, transform me, take what I am and help me to become more like Jesus. God, as I meet with you here, as I listen to your voice, would you conform me to the image of your son? For that is what brings you glory. Glory. This morning we're going to start our series in Psalm 1, I think an appropriate place to begin. Uh, James Boyce says this about Psalm 1, that it stands as a magnificent gateway to this extraordinary collection of Hebrew religious verse. It's a text of which the remaining Psalms are essentially exposition. That is, Psalm 1 is going to lay the pattern, it's going to put forth the paradigm for what's happening, and then the rest of the book of Psalms is just going to be explaining and re-explaining and re-explaining what we find here in Psalm chapter 1. You can see up here on the screen, this is where we're going for the rest of our series. God willing, next week we'll look at Psalm chapter 16. We'll talk about being shaped by joy. And then Psalm chapter 19, being shaped by revelation as we see God's work in creation and we hear God's voice in his word, how does he transform us? Psalm 34, we'll talk about being shaped by suffering and crying out just as the psalmist did, it was good that my heart was afflicted, that I might not wander from your commandments. In Psalm 145, we'll talk about how seeing God shapes us, how we become what we behold. And then in Psalm 131, when Pastor Michael returns from sabbatical, he'll share with us how the Lord worked in his heart as we look at Psalm 131, shaped by rest. For thousands of years, God's people have been singing the Psalms and memorizing the Psalms and meditating on the Psalms. The book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. It has the most chapters of any book in the Bible, 150. It has the longest chapter, Psalm 119. I didn't include that in the series, sorry. And it has the shortest chapter, sorry about that too, Psalm 117. Uh, The book of Psalms stands out. I love what John Crutchfield says, it's up here on the screen. He says, the book of Psalms teaches people how to communicate with God to express their emotions, to live well, to understand God's kingdom, and to worship him rightly. All in a world where evil still lingers and where Yahweh's universal reign is not yet fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven. Psalm chapter one, verse one. Blessed, blessed is the man The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us now as we tune our ear to your voice, speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word. God, captivate us by the glory that we see here in this text. Help us to know you, love you, trust you, and enjoy you more as we hear your voice in Christ's name, amen. As we step into Psalm 1, we're immediately confronted with two paths, two pictures, and two destinations. Two paths, two pictures, and two destinations. There is the blessed person who walks the path of righteousness and he arrives in the congregation of the righteous and then there is the wicked person who walks the way of the sinner and in the end will perish. Anytime you see in Psalms, Proverbs, really in the Old Testament and New Testament, the word way or path, it's all the same word being translated and it's a theme that we see recurring continuously throughout the scriptures. There are two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And so what I want us to do this morning is in this passage, see how it describes these two kinds of people, these two different paths and these two destinations. And then I want us to consider for us, what kind of person am I? Which path have I chosen? So first two paths. Verse one, blessed is the man. The semantic range, that is the range of meaning for this word blessed, it could mean happy, content, or satisfied. So blessed, happy, content, satisfied is the person But before the psalmist gets into telling us about the blessed person, he wants to tell us first about the other person. He wants to give us the contrast, he wants to set up the dark backdrop against we can see what it looks like to truly be one who is blessed. And so he begins with the wicked man. It says this, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. This is the downward spiral of the wicked man who walks the wicked path. There is a settling into life that is decidedly against God. So if you could just picture a person walking down a path, and as they're walking down this path, they're beginning to think a different way and live a different way. The longer he walks the more comfortable he becomes. The longer she follows the path, the more settled she becomes in her disposition. There's a progression or rather a digression that is being depicted here. The individual begins by walking, perhaps timidly and slowly considering every step. Then over time this individual picks up pace and becomes more carefree about continuing to walk down this path. Then this person begins to stand, to settle in, to linger, and eventually, there is full, outright commitment to this path. No longer exercising caution, no longer considering turning back, no longer in motion, but completely settled, fully committed, fixed in this way of living. He walks, he stands, sits there's a downward spiral a digression and this is how the plague of sin envelops the entirety of the individual it begins in the life of the mind and it is insidious proceeding in a gradual subtle way with harmful effect this individual begins by walking in the counsel of the wicked he's listening to all the ways of the world Perhaps it's the idea of just follow your heart. This is the counsel of the wicked and perhaps the counsel that you've heard in the world around us. If it's something that you want and you really want it, then who is someone else to tell you that it's wrong? After all, it's your heart, it's your desires. You should be able to pursue after whatever it is that your heart desires, It would not just be wrong for someone to tell you not to do it, it would be wrong for someone not to affirm you in desiring to have that. Just follow your heart. Or maybe the counsel of the wicked is live and let live. It's a peace at all all costs kind of mentality. So long as whatever decisions you're making and whatever it is that you're doing, don't encroach upon my life, don't have a negative impact on me, then you do your thing over there I'll do my thing over here. You don't bother me, I won't bother you. And it keeps us from loving confrontation. Or maybe the counsel of the wicked says, well, it's not that bad. I mean, really, look at the lives of other people around you. You're Not like he is. You're not like she is. Don't feel so bad about that. Give yourself a break. It's really not that big of a deal. Maybe the counsel of the wicked is instant gratification. Why wait when you can have it now? Don't do it the right way. That's harder, it takes longer, and it might not be as good in the end. Instead, take the easy way. Don't wait for it patiently. Seize it now. It's just as Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three: do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character question brother or sister what company are you keeping who are you surrounding yourself with what are you filling your head and your heart with what are you consuming what do you listen to what do you watch what do you pursue after what do you spend your time thinking about are you drinking too often from the fountain of the world Are you filling your mind with the counsel of the wicked, sometimes maybe deceitfully and subtly so? What are you feasting your soul on? Are they ideas that are contrary to God and his word and his ways? And so our thinking begins to affect our living. The person begins by walking in the counsel of the wicked, but then he begins to stand in the way of sinners. It's moved from the life of the mind into the outward actions, into a manifestation of an unrighteous life. This one's life, his thoughts, his choices, his actions, his words are characterized by sin. And eventually, after the conscience has been sufficiently seared, he sits in the seat of scoffers. The scoffer is like the ones described in Psalm 14, where it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. This thought, this belief that there is no God is at the bottom of all folly. In Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, we read the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To fear the Lord in the scriptures means to live as if God is. That is to live life and to make life's choices and decisions, realizing that God exists and he is who he says he is. And the fool is the one who says in their heart, there is no God. It excludes an individual from even beginning to grow towards wisdom and knowledge. And friends, this can be a practical atheism too. It's the assertion that God, if he exists, however he exists, doesn't really care about the goings on of human beings. He's disinterested. He's removed himself from the affairs of mankind. And he certainly will not call people into account. These scoffers are described in 2 Peter, verses 3 through 4. It says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Do you hear the mentality of the scoffers? They say, yeah, all of those people who follow Jesus, they keep saying that Jesus is gonna come again. Well, guess what? It's been 2,000 years and he ain't here. So who really cares about all of that? It's a hoax. You've given your life to a fairy tale. So why not instead live life, be happy, be merry, eat, drink, and live, and do whatever it is that you want, because this life is all there is. This is the basic assumption of the fool. God, whatever he's like, doesn't matter, and he doesn't care, so just live how you want. There is no God or who cares about him. Now, We may never dare say that in our out loud voice, but what about our decisions? You think back on this last week, this last month, this season of your life, have you been conducting it in a decisively godly way, recognizing that God is and drawing near to him? Or have you been living like God's just kind of irrelevant and I'll throw him a bone on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half? This is how sin works in our lives. It begins seemingly benign like it's no big deal. Maybe it's a passing thought or a small action that's more gray than it is black and white. We dabble and then we retreat. We dabble and then we retreat. But then we go a little further. We linger a little longer. We ponder the thought for just a little bit more before combating it or dismissing it. We compromise just a little and then justify it away. Eventually, the compromises get bigger and the time between opportunities to sin grows smaller. We no longer feel the guilt and shame that we once felt for doing it, for thinking it, or for saying it. Our conscience's voice grows quiet. Where it once was shouting at us, no, turn back, that's not the way. Now there's a faint voice And eventually, we even begin to suppress God altogether or even combat him. This is the wicked person that chooses the path of wickedness. But then there stands the blessed man. Rather than loving this world with all the things of the world, with all of its thoughts, philosophies, and sinful pleasures, the blessed man delights in something else. See how the verse continues, verse two. But the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed person loves the word of God. He knows that if he is going to meet with God anywhere, it is going to be in the pages of this book He knows that when we look at God's word, it's not like a dead, lifeless picture that's hanging on the wall to be observed with some kind of heartless objectivism, but rather it is a window to look through in order to see the world, the real world where God exists and He is in all and over all. Now, I want us to pause for a moment because some may be thinking, I know I'm supposed to love God's word, but honestly, I don't it's like drudgery every time I open it up I know I'm supposed to enjoy it but it just feels like I don't understand it it doesn't get me excited when I actually do read it I walk away feeling even more guilty because I didn't enjoy it or understand what in the world it was even saying Brothers and sisters, there is a constant battle between our flesh and the spirit and the flesh wants nothing to do with God's word. It doesn't want to do the hard work to get after the treasure that can be found in God's word. And our lives are so built around convenience and ease and microwave spirituality where give it to me in 30 seconds and if I don't have it and I don't feel something, then I'm out. I've heard it said that if you wanna rake, that's easy, but all you get are leaves. But if you're willing to dig, you might find treasure. It's harder work, but there's something beautiful to be found. Let me just say, you are not alone if you wrestle with enjoying your time in God's word. The reality is, that's the starting place for all of us, and it's the place that each one of us find ourselves in throughout life. It's like any good thing in life, it begins with discipline but eventually discipline gives way to desire and desire gives way to delight. Uh, Think about running. I hate running. Last year, Pastor Michael had the goal of running 500 miles. I said, good for you, right? Uh, I do not like running at all. I remember before uh, soccer season, we would have our soccer conditioning here in Florida. It was in the fall, which meant that conditioning happened in August, an awesome time to go running, especially after two months of doing whatever teenagers do all summer, right? So you get up and you go running and it's drudgery, but after a little while, it's like, hey, this is actually feeling pretty good. And then it's like, hey, I I actually want to get up and do this. Uh, It's the same thing with anything good that we do in our lives. Uh, My wife, Katie, she loves running. And at first there was some discipline involved, but then it became desire. I want to go running. Please, can I go running? And then eventually desire becomes delight where it's like, I have to go running today. Oh, please let me go running. If I do nothing else, that's the one thing I have to do today. Hear me, friends, that can happen with the word of God. Anything that you give yourself to begins with discipline and you're not very good at it at first, but then it becomes desire and eventually delight. The blessed man, the blessed woman delights in God's word. This person believes 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and hear this part, and his commandments are not burdensome. God is not a cosmic killjoy trying to restrain you from actually enjoying the good things in life. That's the same lie that the serpent whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden. God doesn't love you and he's keeping something good from you. That is not our God. His commandments are not burdensome. They're issued from a loving father who wants what's best for his children. We ask our kids all the time. We say, hey, why do we have rules, Asher and Everly? And they're supposed to say, they don't always, but they're supposed to say, because they keep us safe and they show us how life works best. That's why God gives us rules. That's why God gives us commandments, because they keep our souls safe. And they show us how life works best. After all, He's the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He's the one who knows how it works best. And as a loving Father, He issues His word and His commands to us that it may go well with our souls. We'll see later in Psalm chapter 19 the blessed person, He knows that God's word is what revives the soul. It's what makes wise the simple. It's what rejoices the heart. It's what enlightens the eyes. More to be desired are God's words than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. But look at how verse two continues It says, and on his law, he meditates day and night. He thinks deeply about the word of God and he considers it thoroughly. He fills his mind with the truth. Uh, Maybe you've been consistently looking at God's word and you've been following since the beginning of the year a Bible reading plan and and you're reading and you're reading and you're reading and you're just wondering, but why am I not growing? Like, why is my heart not changing? Why am I not beginning to love the things that God loves more? Why am I not changing in my actions? Let me ask you to consider this. It may be because you don't spend sufficient time meditating on God's word. Reading is one thing, and that's hard. Meditating is another altogether, and that's hard. I've been taught that the bridge between information and, and transformation is meditation. The bridge between information and transformation is meditation, and I'm not talking about home kind of meditation, right? It's not an emptying of your mind so that you can be one with the universe. It's filling your mind with truth so that you might experience your union with Christ. And so if you're doing just consume, 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 content, 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 more information, more Bible intake, but you're not taking the time to consider and to thoroughly think through and to meditate on these truths, that may be why you're stunted in your growth. It's not a chapter a day keeps the devil away. It's thinking about God's word and allowing it to consume us. It's not a checking the box kind of mentality. We should read and consider, if you only have 10 minutes that you're gonna spend in God's word, rather than 10 minutes of pure reading, take five minutes to read and five minutes to think. That would be more profitable, more beneficial than 10 minutes of pure content ascertaining. Instead, read five minutes, think deeply five minutes, pray over the text. We spend so much time programming our brains to consume and then move on to the next thing. We need to marinate in the truth. Let it spin on the wheel, so to speak, and in turn, shape us. On his law, he meditates day and night. Later in the Psalms, in Psalm 119, the psalmist will ask this, how can a young man keep his, don't miss this, his way, his path, pure, by guarding it according to your word? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We don't memorize scripture just to get in a buck, although wannabucks are awesome, right? (laughs) We memorize scripture so that we can hide it in our hearts, so that we can have an arsenal of truth to consider when things come up in life, and we can think God's thoughts after him, and we can love and value the things that God loves and values. We fill our minds with truth. We meditate on truth. We memorize truth so that we can keep our way pure and not sin against the Lord. Not so that he'll love us more, but so that we'll love him more. And the nearer we are to him, the more satisfied we'll be. We become what we behold. Well, that's Psalm 1 1 through 2 in 31 minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, I wanted to spend the most of our time here developing this principle of the paths because this is a concept that is seen all throughout the Psalms and the rest of Scripture. It's not a coincidence that as soon as we turn to the opening pages of the New Testament and after 400 years of silence, the very first word in Matthew that's attributed to Jesus is what? Blessed. Exactly what we see here in Psalm 1, blessed. His hearers would have immediately been brought back to Psalm 1, blessed is the man and the path that he takes. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is basically an exposition of Psalm 1. Jesus is just continuing to tell his people, here's how God's people have walked the path of righteousness, and here's now what it looks like to continue to walk the path of righteousness. That's why he gets to Matthew chapter 7, and we read this, a passage we're familiar with Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14 Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and here it is, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus makes it very clear, there are two different ways, there are two different roads that you can take. If you would picture with me for a moment, we get in the car, and we drive to the booming metropolis of Lake City. If you don't know where Lake City is, that's okay, I don't think it's really that big of a deal, sorry if you're from there. It's North Florida, right between Florida and Georgia, somewhere right in there, and it's right off I-75. Now, if you are getting onto the ramp there, you have two options of getting on I-75. You can go north, and you may end up in the horrible place of Atlanta, close to Athens, where the University of Georgia is. (laughs) I can say that for the next five weeks. (laughs) Or... You can get on I-75 South and you may find yourself in the celestial city of Gainesville. (laughs) It's never been called that before, I'm fairly confident. Now here's the thing, you choose your destination the moment you choose your path. And if you get on I-75 North, you will never end up in Gainesville from Lake City. If you get on I-75 South, then that's exactly where you'll go. This is what Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter seven, that there's two ways. One seems easy, it's broad. So many people take it because it just seems to make sense to our flesh, but there's another way. There's a way that you can go that's more difficult, that's harder, but in its end, it leads to life. And then don't miss this. In John 14, six, Jesus says this, I am the what? The way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He is the Psalm 1 way. He is the only way that the blessed man, he who would experience the presence of God, Jesus is the only way to experience that reality. He is the way. He is the only way that we can be right with God and that we can enjoy The blessed life. Two paths, two people. Now two pictures in verses three through four. What do these people look like? It says, the blessed man, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The blessed person is like a tree, the wicked person is like chaff. You can see the two pictures here on the screen. The tree, it's rooted, it's stable. When the winds of adversity come, it's not easily blown over. There is a steadfastness, a firmness to the character and quality of his life. Not only that, but this person is alive, this person is growing, with its roots sunk deep down into the grace of God. This life is fruitful and lasting. It is a life that is full of purpose and meaning and depth. It is the truly prosperous life. It's not a guarantee to be healthy and wealthy, but rather it is a picture of a life that is fulfilling its God-created and God-intended purpose. It's the life that Jesus promised in John 10, 10, when he said, the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not so the wicked. The wicked instead is like this chaff over here on the other side of the screen. What they would do is they would gather in the grain and it would be brought to the threshing floor. Once all the grain was brought there, it would be crushed and beat out and it would separate the grain, the good stuff that was edible and useful from the chaff, the covering, the skin, the the exterior part. And then what they would do while the wind was blowing is they would take these large pitchforks and they would throw the whole heap up into the air. And as the wind was blowing, because the chaff was weightless, because it had no substance, because it was useless, it was blown and carried away. And then the grain that actually had weight and meaning and value would fall to the floor. Jesus, or I'm sorry, the psalmist is saying that's what the wicked man is like. He's like chaff that's just blown away, not fulfilling his God-intended purpose. Weightless, unstable, no true meaning, no true purpose. They are dead, lifeless. They're no longer vitally connected to the root, easily blown away. And so the two destinations we find in verses five and six, therefore, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the path, the way, the road of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Brothers and sisters, this is the principle of the paths. The paths are discernible. There is God's way, and then there is not God's way. There is living a life founded upon this book, and there is living a life founded upon anything else. A path always goes to a given destination. I-75 North, Athens. I-75 South, Gainesville. You can choose the path, but you cannot choose the destination. Hear this. Stated intentions do not determine your destination. Your actual path determines your destination. Get on I-75 North as much as you want and say, I'm gonna hit Gainesville, I'm gonna hit Gainesville, I'm gonna hit Gainesville. You're not, not from Lake City. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what path you actually choose. So if you would live like the blessed man, the blessed woman, the blessed person, then you must delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night. If you do this, you will be like a tree, standing firm, stable, steadfast, not blown over. You'll be fruitful. You'll endure. You'll be able to stand in the judgment for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But instead, if you would live like the wicked man, always surrounding yourself with the counsel of this world and living as if God does not exist or matter, then you'll be like chaff, weightless, purposeless, unable to stand in the congregation of the righteous and ultimately perishing. Two paths. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way that seems right to a man. There is a path that seems right to a man, the easy path, the broad path, the one that many take. But its end is the way of death. Or what we'll see next Sunday in Psalm 16, verse 11, my favorite verse in the whole Bible You make known to me, here it is, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures. Forevermore. What will you be shaped by? Will it be the Word of God or the ways of this world? If you would be blessed, then my prayer is that these next four weeks help us to collectively meditate on truth and consider God's Word and delight in His Word as we hear His voice so that you and I might be shaped into the image of Christ, that we would become what we behold, that God would make us like him. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the glory, the beauty, the hope of these truths. Father, thank you that as we come to your word, we meet with you. It is the one place that we can be confident that as we draw near to you in your word, you'll be drawing near to us as well. We thank you that your word is living and active and that by the power of your spirit, you take your word and you use it to shape us, to help us to become more like you, O oh God. I pray that you would this week center us on the wheel of your divine grace. God, that you would add moisture to those who need moisture, a time of refreshing and healing. God, that you would apply pressure to those of us who need pressure that we might be shaped. Father, that you would continue in your providence and in your faithfulness to move things around at just the right speed. God, we thank you that you are the potter and we are the clay and that you give us this very good gift in your word to help shape us into exactly who you would have us to be. Father, I pray for us, for this people, that you would give us a delight in your word. Father, for those who have found it to be just pure discipline and are frustrated with time in your word, God, I pray that this week you would incline their hearts to truth, that you would open their eyes, that they would see wondrous things in your word, that you would unite their hearts to fear your name, that you would satisfy them with your steadfast love. Father, for those who are already delighting in your word, we know that that is a good gift that is granted to us from you, and we pray, oh God, that you would continue to pour out that grace. God, let us be a people, a people of the book, meditating on the truth, drawing near to you and knowing the one who spoke these truths. For your glory and our joy, in Christ's name, amen. Amen.